Hey, everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. Great episode this week. We have Eddie, the CFO of Riv Capital, live from MJ BizCon. It's a great episode. Take you out to Vegas. Uh, we talk about Riv Capital, what used to be Canopy Rivers, the VC arm of Canopy Growth. They've spun out, they've taken investment from Scott's Miracle Grow. That's a great story. And they've got a whole bunch of cash that they're going to invest in US cannabis. That is the next focus. Great conversation. Eddie is super smart and open. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Hey guys, if you could just do us a quick favor and write a review, it really, really helps us make sure other people can hear this great content. Super easy. Thanks for doing that. Eddie, so good to meet you, man. Great Thanks so much for well. being on the show. Thanks for having me. In your beautiful Cosmo suite here, we got a nice view of the fountains and coming straight from Cannabis Week, I guess it's called now, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's been uh, two years, I guess, since it's been done in person, but it seems to have just that same vibe that it had two years ago, which is great to see everybody together again. And it's been productive for you? It's been super productive. We've had a jam-packed schedule, meeting with different companies, meeting with different investors and other folks, and it's just been great to see everybody so enthusiastic about it and able to accommodate, which is a pretty evolving schedule as you go through it. The logistics here are oh, incredible. Wild. Yeah. Well, we were just talking about it. Something looks just getting around, like it's across going the street, somewhere. and it takes 15 minutes I to know. get there. People are like, we can walk there. I'm like, no, yeah. no, we yeah. can't. Plan 25 minutes for that. <laughs> Bring two bottles of water along the way. For sure. Yeah. Um, so your partner, Narbe, CEO, was on yes. the show, I don't know, two, three years ago, yep. a little while ago, yep. back when you guys were still Canopy, Canopy Rivers. Canopy Rivers, yes. Um, Riv Capital now. Yes. Tell me what Riv Capital is. Sure. So... Maybe I can recap a little bit of a brief history of what Canopy Rivers was. So Canopy yeah. Rivers was, was founded in 2017 as a venture capital affiliate of Canopy Growth. And for a few years after that, what the company was focused on was building a portfolio of minority investments that were involved in different aspects of the cannabis value chain, um, with a particular focus on Canadian companies or international companies that operated in federally legal manners. As we were going through building up that portfolio, we always kept our eye on the US for obvious reasons. And I think definitely through 2018, early 2019, I think that's when folks really started to see the momentum of revenue growth uh, in select markets in the United States. So we knew that we had to get into this market. We knew that we had to be able to participate in it directly. We knew that we wanted to invest in plant touching businesses in the US, um, but we couldn't do it at the time. We couldn't do it for a variety of reasons. And one of them was the relationship with Campy Growth, which obviously has restrictions by virtue of its investment from Constellation, its listing on the uh, on the Nasdaq and uh, banking relationships as well. So towards the end of 2020, uh, when we announced it and subsequently closed it in February 2021, we structured a transaction where we effectively separated from Campy Growth. So we sold three of the portfolio companies that we had at that time to them in exchange for a bunch of cash, a bunch of Canopy Growth shares, which we subsequently monetized. Uh, and at the same time in that transaction, we redeemed Canopy Growth's shares that they held in us so that we no longer had that restriction associated with uh, being able to invest in plant touching businesses in the US. And that's when we were able to really start in earnest this approach to building a platform that was focused on what we perceive as the fastest growing and most exciting market in the world for cannabis, which is the United States. And that is 
fundamentally Riv Capital's focus, building an operating platform in the United States. Back to the canopy story, just briefly. Is this a joint decision? How, how do you get to this decision? I mean, obviously, eyes are on the US, but when you talk about it with canopy growth, are they in favor of this? Do they, you know, do they not want to do venture anymore? Is that the idea? Or? Yeah, I think there was definitely an evolution of the relationship over time. And I think what you saw with Canopy Growth as they went through their leadership transition is they wanted to get a lot more focused on certain parts of the business. And I think in the short term, Canada became a particular focus for them and just making sure that they were doing what they could to optimize their position in that landscape. Both sides were very uh, upfront with each other in terms of what we wanted and what they wanted. And we kept reiterating how critical it was to go after the US because we thought that there was an opportunity, at least in the near term, to be able to take advantage of some you know, valuation mechanics and be able to grow a business uh, successfully by getting in a little bit earlier than we thought we could if we had just conditional exposure in different uh, areas. So it was a very collaborative discussion. Both sides came to what I think was a really good resolution, canopy growth got what was important to them, we got what was important to us. There was a couple companies they really wanted. Absolutely, and one of the big parts of the transaction that we did was they effectively doubled their stake in Terrasen because we both had um, an equivalent ownership position in this exchangeable shares of Terrasen. Um, so that was one of the portfolio assets that we sold to Canopy Growth. So again, I think it was a transaction where both sides were very happy with how it, how it turned out, and now we're all focused on our own uh, opportunities that we're looking to pursue. So you turn around and liquidate your stock in Canopy, which turns out to be a pretty good sum of money, correct? That yes. you've now funded this, is, is that public number? Or? I, I, absolutely, so basically coming off of that um, transaction with, with Canopy Growth, we had, as part of the consideration of that transaction, it was about 118 million Canadian of cash, and then we subsequently monetized the Canopy Growth shares that were part of that for 110 million Canadian. So it puts a sizable amount of cash on our balance sheet, at that time, our balance sheet was primarily cash that was generated from this transaction, but we still have and still continue to have this legacy portfolio of minority investments from, call it Rivers uh, 1.0. Those investments, of which there are about eight or nine of them, they have a book value for us of around 50 million Canadian. So that's what our balance sheet looks like. It's a very ba clean balance sheet, but it's predominantly cash. And as you can imagine, uh, that's very, very attractive to the U.S. operators that we're talking to right now just because there is a dearth of capital available in the industry. We do expect that to evolve over time, but obviously there's so many growth opportunities ahead for these companies. They need the capital to be able to do it, and we're in a good position where we have the opportunity to offer that. Well, you've come into a really interesting position, as I'm sure you know, because there's a number of funds that have been on this show previously that had a lot of trouble raising the next round. You know, they all said, we're gonna do 100 million next, and right. it didn't necessarily happen, right? Um, so they must be beating down your doors today, these, these founders. It's, 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 a, it's a good position to be in, and, and you know, we could, we could talk about the, um, the Scott's Miracle Grow investment in us as well, which added a bunch of capital to our balance sheet. But you know, effectively, we're sitting on what is about 320 million US or 400 million Canadian in cash, and just given where we're at in the industry, Given the opportunities that are in front of us, you could do a lot of damage with that money. So we're really excited to be able to, to put that to work and some of the opportunities that we're looking at. You brought up Scott's. Very interesting cannabis story. Yes. I think that that's, that story of Scott's has kind of been around for a little bit right. in the industry, right? And I think from my perspective, I think I asked you this on the phone call, how relevant is what they've done to what they're in cannabis. How relevant is that? Like the technology, the products, whatever. Yeah, and, and I think that, I think the story for Scott sort of dates back to probably in excess of 10 years ago now, where 
um, you know, they were evaluating or they were looking at whether or not they wanted to get into the cannabis industry directly. And at that time, it was naturally a much different landscape than it was now. And I think there was, you know, not as broad of support as there is for making moves in the space now. So even though there were adjacencies with their business, they made the decision in the early 2010s to not necessarily pursue cannabis directly. Um, but then I think it was about seven or eight years ago where they really identified and wanted to execute on the opportunity uh, on the hydroponic side and just supplying the equipment that cannabis growers would, would need to use. So that uh, strategy started with an acquisition of a company called General Hydroponics, like I said, about seven or eight years ago. And then since then, they've just built this Hawthorne gardening subsidiary substantially through a series of, of transactions. Uh, and, and they built this business that as of today, it's on a run rate uh, on a run rate basis for this fiscal year that they're currently in, it's probably going to do about 1.5, 1.6 billion of revenue just serving the ancillary market of the cannabis wow. space. So they've built an incredible knowledge base with respect to the cannabis industry, the operators in the cannabis industry, what works well, what doesn't work well, things like that. Um, but I think for them, you know, their focus was always going to be a long term on this is going to be a CPG industry. They've done an incredible job with Scott's Miracle Girl proper building consumer-facing brands that people know and love, uh, and they had a strong desire to get into this space and do this in, in cannabis. So from our perspective, you know, we couldn't have picked a better partner to partner up with, and we're so excited for the future. And when you say partner, what's that relationship like? So the name, the structure of their investment was... Uh, they're invested in you. They're invested in Riv Capital. Okay. Yeah. So they invested in Riv Capital via a convertible debenture. And again, that was addressing some of the restrictions that they had on their side with respect to the ability to put money directly into equity of the business today. So the way we structured it, it was a 150 million US investment in Reef Capital. Uh, it's a convertible debenture, so it converts at a conversion price of about $1.90 a share. Uh, very uh, low cost of, of, of debt on that instrument. It's just over 2% for the first two years and 0% thereafter. That's it's awesome. a six-year term. And the idea is that upon an event of federal legalization or permissibility, it would trigger the conversion of that debt into equity. On an as-converted basis today, that would represent about 41, 42% of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, we're working closely with them, looking at the space, developing the strategy, and really trying to execute that in the near term. And are they looking for you to make investments that they possibly would acquire? technologies that they would license? What's the strategic uh, angle for them? I yeah, and I, and I think it, 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 it's sort of aligned with what the strategic angle is for us broadly, which is that you know when we look at the US market right now, it's pretty bifurcated in that you have you know on the, on the West Coast, highly fragmented, ultra competitive landscape. On the East Coast, uh, undersupplied, quasi oligopolistic uh, states that, that companies are operating in. And it's, I believe that it's reasonable to say in the long term, those two scenarios aren't gonna play out into perpetuity. Um, so what does that long-term scenario look like? How are companies gonna survive in that long-term? And really you need to sort of harmonize both those environments and figure out where in the middle the industry ultimately settles. And look, everybody kind of says the same thing, which is that this is gonna be a CPG type industry over time brands are going to win the day. But I think there's so much focus right now on just building capacity, building retail space in the East Coast markets, because the nature of the supply environment is if you put it on the shelves, it's going to sell. That's something that the brands that are operating in California don't have the luxury of being able to say. 
So the focus is how can we create a platform that ultimately spans across the United States eventually and leverages that ultra-competitive, successful approach that the brands are taking on the West Coast markets and marries that up with some of the favorable either limited license or uh, favorable supply-demand economics that exist on the East Coast markets right now. So that's one potential outcome, I think. Mm -hmm. I think the two other schools of thought are everybody fight it out in California, then the MSOs come in and sweep up whatever's left for pennies. The other school of thought is, okay, well, because there's such limited product and brands in these other markets, eventually they're going to have to buy California and bring them into, they're going to have to license them, whatever, which you're already starting to see a right. little bit. Which one for you is kind of closer? You know, I think it's more so the latter. And I think the reason I say that is just because when you talk about either buying those brands or partnering with those brands and bringing them to the East Coast eventually, at the end of the day, those brands are those brands because they've established a certain element of quality, standardization, and consistency that really resonates with the consumer. And I know I'm saying the obvious here, but that, that that's what developing a brand mm -hmm. is. It's McDonald's, it's Marriott. You, you know what you're to, getting. You, yeah. you got to know what you're getting when, when you're going for it. And those brands rely on a certain element of quality in infrastructure and in standard operating procedures and the ability to bring those products to market that we don't know if the operators on the East Coast are really focusing on that right now. So being able to think about the future, think about the future of bringing those West Coast brands to the East Coast and making sure that the infrastructure that exists on the East Coast is sufficient to be able to maintain and grow that quality, that level of consistency that has enabled those brands to become those brands on the West Coast. That I think is gonna be a differentiator when it comes to how those West Coast brands choose to migrate across the country because they are gonna eventually want to migrate across the country. How they choose to migrate across the country, who they choose to partner with, they don't want to compromise the quality of what they're putting out there. They need to have faith that whoever it is that is actually bringing that brand to market has the infrastructure to do it on the basis of the quality and consistency that their consumers know and love. And that's what we're focused on, making sure we establish as part of this platform, not having infrastructure that a key brand would ever look at and say, we don't want to use that to get into those target mm -hmm. markets. How far away is the East Coast from developing that infrastructure? Right now, because all you hear about across various markets is how much square feet of canopy is being added. And you've got hundreds of thousands of square feet of canopy that's you know being rolled out over the next 12 to 18 months. I think we're not necessarily sure right now what that's going to mean in terms of how wholesale and retail prices evolve. But obviously, we know what happens when supply catches up with demand. I think that the focus right now is building that capacity so that you reach a situation of when it's not just flying off the shelves just because there's supply, it's flying off the shelves because there's a brand that actually resonates with consumers uh, and, and that they want to go to the store for and actually get. The time frame associated with that could be anywhere between two and five years, I think. But mm -hmm. I think just like what we you know, continue to monitor the regulatory landscape and how that continues to evolve. I heard somebody make a comment the other day, which I thought was interesting, where they always answer the question of when is legalization gonna happen by saying, in the next five years. And they've been saying that since 2013. So mm -hmm. it's just that continued uh, approach to the market and looking at it and, and trying to stay agile, I think, along the way is important too. Because again, when it comes to questions of timing, whether it's how close are the East Coast markets, uh, how close the East Coast markets are to being able to do that, or what events of federal legalization or permissibility are gonna be, nobody can predict exactly when that's gonna happen. But being able to be agile and nimble and respond to the evolving market conditions, I think is a critical Part of that, and I think that's something that we 
take pride in in terms of how we approached the situation with the transaction we did with Campy Growth at the end of that we announced at the end of last year and close the beginning of this year. That was a demonstration of our ability to respond to what was happening in the market, what we were seeing, and saying, look, there are going to be a lot of impediments to us getting out of this restricted focus and actually being able to put capital work in the U.S., but we went through the steps to do it, and I think that's what other cannabis companies need to be able to do. Pivot, respond to the conditions, and make sure you're focused on the right areas. Also helps to have a lot of cash. Also helps to have a lot of cash. <laughs> nobody can nobody can do that. It's so interesting to watch the sort of phases of the markets, right? Because you're talking about, you know, every day you read new cannabis ventures or whatever, and yes. it's, oh, we've got this X hundred thousand square feet of canopy. And I read that coming from the California market, and I say, well, prices of wholesale cannabis are plummeting in California. Mm. And there's been such an emphasis on the infrastructure. We got to be the first distributor. We got to have all the cultivation. And now when you look at it, it's like, how valuable were those investments today? And then is the same thing taking place in these other markets where, okay, some of them are limited licenses, which certainly adds value, but then they add more licenses. Right. So yeah, how much is that infrastructure play gonna be valued in a CPG brand world? I think, I think it's, a, it's a really good question. I think. I think it's easy for the individuals making the decisions to allocate that capital today towards building that infrastructure to identify pretty solid near-term ROI on that capital that's invested. But I think what's fundamentally critical, and what I hope people are doing, is when they're evaluating the long-term ROI associated with that, take into account the realities of what's gonna happen to wholesale and retail pricing over time. Make sure that we're not looking at the forecast in the vacuum of what exists, what kind of market exists today, and really thinking about how those changing dynamics that you're describing are going to impact the market long term. The ROI long term isn't going to look as good mm -hmm. as it's going to look in the near term, simply because the economics are going to shift over time. And we could probably have a whole separate conversation about interstate commerce and mm -hmm. how that's going to change the dynamics yep. of that. However, I think people feel compelled to be investing in that infrastructure today. And it comes back to this, you know, topic that we've, we've, we've talked about already, which is if product is flying off the shelves, it's hard for them to not want to build more retail stores, want to build more cultivation capacity to take advantage of that. It's just, it's, it's super critical to be thoughtful about that along the way and to make sure that as you're allocating those dollars to those capital projects, you're taking a very sober view of what that's going to look like and how that's going to evolve over time. So as an extension, there is more and more retail coming online. Uh, and if you look at the way most products are purchased in the world, they're online, Amazon, whatever. Is there too much retail here? And if you flash forward five years, like, is the dispensaries going to be packed in all of these states? Because sometimes I feel like there's been a lot of money that's been put into that segment. It's, it, it's interesting. We, we can kind of tackle that a few different ways. So I think may, maybe the first thing I'd say is I thought, and I was incorrect about this, I thought that when legalization happened in Canada, the vast, vast majority of purchases were going to be done online. What we saw, and it makes complete sense in hindsight, is the rollout of brick and mortar retail stores played a huge role in growing the size of the market mm. over time. Mm -hmm. And I think it all comes back to accessibility. If you have the ability, if there are less frictions attached to you being able to see a cannabis store, go into a cannabis store and learn about cannabis, that's gonna play a huge role in facilitating the growth of the market uh, over time. I think that we are in a stage, and I, I, I know I'm repeating stuff that, that many others have said uh, as well, but we are in a stage where the consumer needs to be educated 
the consumer that exists today might not necessarily be, be the consumer of the future. And people benefit from being able to go into a retail store, talk to butt tenders, see the products firsthand, and really understand what this maybe new product for them is actually all about. So I think that the uh, development of retail is certainly gonna be something that is gonna help continue to grow the size of the market. Is there, is there too much retail? My thought on that would be in the United States, no, there isn't right now. In Canada, and I'll be specific about Ontario, what we saw was a very slow rollout of brick and mortar retail in Ontario. And everybody was saying that that was contributing to the slower than expected growth of the market in Ontario. As Ontario added more and more and more and more stores, we saw the numbers start to pick up. We saw what the true potential uh, of the Canadian landscape for cannabis was gonna be. Now, that's helped the general market data, but at the same time, I think there's just so many retailers out there that on an individual store basis, a lot of those retailers may be having a tough time right now. And they might have challenges getting through the next two, three, four, five years. So I think there does need to be a balance between making the capital investment in retail, knowing that there is gonna be an explosion of other retail perhaps nearby you. But um, I think in a lot of the East Coast markets and a lot of the limited license states, where we're at right now, the retail landscape is very manageable for the incumbent operators. Who's to say what's going to happen to those numbers uh, long term? But retail does play a pretty key role. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, very, very interesting. Your sort of different take on Canada. I hear less about Canada today, right? They had this time period where it's like that was all cannabis was, was like right. talking about Canada, right? And it has shifted as your focus has shifted. Um, you guys have really invested across the landscape. Uh, in Canopy Rivers and, yes. and now what you're doing now. When you say, okay, the new focus is the U.S., is there a segment that excites you more than others? Is it more infrastructure side? Is it brands? Is it best operators? What, take me through the thesis a little more. Absolutely, and I think it ties back to a little bit of what I was saying before, just in terms of you have these two very different sides of the country now, very different ways that the cannabis industry operates across the country. and. The operators that appear focused on the East Coast, obviously very different than the operators that are focused on the West Coast, we're really lasered in on how do we harmonize those two environments and how do we bring that to what we anticipate to be the future of the cannabis industry. I'd say there is a natural sequence to doing that, and the sequence is having a priority of uh, establishing the infrastructure on the East Coast markets in some of the more limited license uh, jurisdictions. So when we look at markets like New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Illinois, Ohio, those are very attractive markets right now, just in terms of, in the case of New York and New Jersey, what impending adult use markets are gonna mean for uh, the economics of, of, of those jurisdictions. And in the other ones, which just have very robust uh, markets right now, but still in a limited license fashion where incumbent operators are doing really well. For us, the sequence would be establishing that infrastructure first, and then shifting the focus to bringing what we believe to be the leading brands into those markets. And again, I take it back to that point about they have become the brands that people talk about because they've established a reputation for quality that might be a little bit more difficult to achieve given how infrastructure is building out in, uh, in the East Coast markets. So making sure that the investments or acquisitions that we do make or do on the East Coast involve infrastructure where we have a sound belief in either the incumbent operator or the infrastructure that they've established to be able to bring that actual quality of product to market. Interesting. So brands, one of the hardest things to build, right? Yes. Really hard to build a brand. And as of yet, 
there aren't that many strong brands in this industry. I mean, if you take out cookies, just like the only one like where people are wearing hoodies walking around, right? Who are other brands that you're excited about, whether you've invested in them or not? You know. Yeah. So I I, I will avoid uh, saying any names okay. right now, just because Fair of, you know, either conversation we could be having or or just um, you know not not playing favorites. But I, I I do really enjoy coming out to and you know the other day we're going to Planet 13, which is obviously something that you can only do when you come into to this it's conference. It's crazy, yeah. And, you, and it's great to see the growth of that retail landscape. Is it the time. largest dispensary in the world? To my knowledge, it's the largest yeah. dispensary They say that, in the world. but like it's, everything it's, in Vegas is the biggest. Everything so. in Vegas is the biggest, yeah. as we can see looking yeah. out of this window right here. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just, it's great to see that proliferation of brands that, that have emerged on, on the shelf space there. And you know, when we go out to Los Angeles and seeing, you know, what, what, what brands are popping off shelves there. And I think it's good because we have, you know, there's some brands that have established themselves in the marketplace and are brands that consumers really know and love. But I think you're seeing new brands enter the landscape too that are gaining good traction. And, you know, back to your point around there is no, you know, real big national brand. Naturally, that's a function of the regulatory dynamics Absolutely. of what exists and, and some of the frictions there. But I also think too, it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves over time with respect to do the brands that exist today, are they the brands that are, are going to be the most successful long term? And I think there are definitely ones that are out there today that that certainly would, um, you know, carry that momentum forward into the cannabis industry that's going to exist 5, 10, 15 years from now. But I think we're also at a point, too, where, and, you know, the number varies depending on where you, you hear it quoted, but whether cannabis penetration is 20% of the population or 25% of the population, or whatever the case may be, we know that if this industry is going to grow into what alcohol is today, where that's a you know, 60, 70% penetration rate, then you have a whole uh, segment of the market that are consumers that don't exist as cannabis consumers today. And the question is going to be, are the brands that are in existence today and have built up their presence today going to resonate with those consumers? Or is it going to be new brands that are going to cater more towards what that new consumer might look like? And you know, come back to stats around you know form factor split and how the market is allocated that way and it's been it's been pretty interesting to see how steady flower and pre-roll has been in terms of just the vast majority really of yeah. product purchases and you look at a category like beverages that i think you know more companies are putting capital towards now to, to innovate and, and establish r d and they area. really want it to be a big they segment. want it to be a big segment <laughs> but that number keeps getting quoted around one percent of the market mm -hmm. so as cannabis becomes a little bit more normalized as destigmatization continues to occur, which I think, you know, going through COVID, that essential business declaration, I think played a, a big huge deal. role in being able to, to, to normalize the industry. Also just not having a, as many opportunities to drink alcohol. Absolutely. To go out to the bar, to party, whatever. And and, you, and we saw that in, in the numbers, we saw that in how the markets were evolving over time. Um, so so, so as, as we progress towards that, you know, future state of, 50, 60, 70% penetration, and we anticipate that that might create more of a market share for edibles, for beverages, uh, et cetera, what are those brands that are gonna resonate with consumers at that time? I think there's gonna be a few of them that obviously don't exist today. There's a few that exist today that are gonna continue to carry the momentum going forward. And it's, you know, it's our, it's our, what we have to be able to do is identify the winners, place the bets on the winners, and help them become more successful across the country. That sounds hard. <laughs> it's 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 hard, but I think with the group that we have, and and particularly how past passionate we are across our company and across 
uh, Scott's Miracle Grow, and, and and just their support and focus on you know building uh, you know the cannabis company that we anticipate this will be uh, in the future. It, it's hard, but it's doable, and 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 we're we're excited to roll up the sleeves and get it done. And you know, I think that's actually you know it just reminds me of, of another positive point about the relationship we've established with Scott's is that you have this large organization that has you know it's deriving revenue from multiple countries they operate a national supply chain and you know i think you know we're talking about brands and market evolution and things like that and i think it's it's pretty easy to say what the right thing to do is to your point though it's it's hard to actually do it it's yeah. hard to actually execute and i think that's one of the many benefits of this partnership is that we have this large company that has that executional they've there, focus they've, they've that, got that yeah. organizational heft and I think we're really excited to, to, to work through how we can leverage that in the future. So obviously brand investments, much different risk profile than investing in infrastructure or something. Maybe the, the upside isn't as good, but they're gonna be around, right? Um, do you think about the allocation in, in deployment in that way, you know, saying, okay, well, this portion is going to be super risky and we don't know whether these brands are going to pop, but like this cultivation is going to maintain cash flow for ever. Right. And, and, and I think that, that comes in the evaluation, but I'll still bring it back to that point around when you're doing that evaluation of the allocation of capital and you're looking at how much you want to set aside for building the infrastructure, which is obviously capital intensive versus maybe some of the more asset light approaches to building brands and or 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 establish or sorry helping grow uh, existing brands uh, across the country we just need to make sure that when we're looking at those capital allocation decisions we're very thoughtful about the cash flows that can come off of that infrastructure long term because and i know i'm repeating myself here but we the the industry that exists today the reality that exists today for those infrastructure assets particularly on the east coast it's not going to exist forever and, and and cash flows will exist forever but just the return on that invested capital sure. will diminish over time. And I think that's something that all operators in the industry, you know, have to critically evaluate and, and think through, which is just that, you know, this weird patchwork regulatory framework that exists uh, across the country does necessarily lead you to an in inefficient allocation of capital when you have to rebuild the same infrastructure over and over again. So to your, to your point about how do you decide between investing the capital on, on the brand side or investing the capital in the underlying infrastructure, we need to figure out how to do both in a smart way that is that is being very thoughtful about how it will evolve over time, how the ROI will evolve over time, because there's gonna be particular returns in the next two to three years that are gonna be generated from different assets that are gonna be successful in the next five, six, seven years. Mm -hmm. um, we're certainly in an infrastructure phase, right? How do you make this efficient? How do you make money from it? One of the things I've been surprised about is there's a lack of innovation. Right, like I, I was at Hall of Flowers a couple of weeks ago, and everybody has an infused pre-roll, and I'm like, you know, there's nothing kind of new here. Is there a new segment or product that you're really excited about? I mean, it, and you know what? It's it's kind of a it might be a little bit of a lame answer to be honest with you, but I, I bring it back to the beverage category, and I and I bring it back. Do you to like beverages? Do you I drink do, them? I do like beverages, and I think that um, you know, and, and I'll comment on on our former partner here. I think what, what you know, Canopy Growth and some of the other country, uh, companies in Canada have done in terms of uh, investing capital and in, in, in building beverage brands, I think has been has been pretty cool to see and it's been pretty interesting to see. Now, there are uh, aspects of the regulation that are inhibiting the broader development of beverages, and I think they also are just from a logistics perspective a little bit harder to distribute uh, in, in 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 different markets. 
But when you think about categories that, and I keep coming back to, what will it take to continue the pace of growth that we've seen over the last three, four, five years? And a huge part of that is going to be bringing new consumers into the market, bringing new consumers into the market, bringing new consumers into the market. I don't think I'm saying anything out of school by saying that you know inhalables are not necessarily going to be the most natural point of entry for a lot of new consumers. So making sure that capital is allocated towards R&D and innovation in the edible space and we'll classify beverages as a subcategory of that, I think that that's going to be super critical in terms of bringing those new consumers in. Again, taking it back to the point of how do we bring it from a market where there's 20 to 25% penetration today to 50, 60, 70% penetration uh, similar to the alcohol industry. And I think I think getting good beverages in people's hands is gonna be a big part of it. You know, we th- talk about the social experience of, of cannabis and, and, and how people interact with it, with each other. And, you know, when you talk about a market where 55% of sales are, are flowers and are flower and then add on another 10% pre-roll, sitting around and, and passing and joining around, I think is the most natural uh, element of how people would describe social uh, encounters with cannabis. How do we transition that over to being able to sit around a table and engage in that very natural behavior of having a drink together? Mm-hmm. We need to invest in beverages. We need to make sure that the products that are coming to market are good quality. It's about consistency. It's about uh, it's, uh, standardization of, of onset, offset. Uh, and, and there's a lot more work that needs to be done in that, in that space. But I think to your point, if we're not innovating, if we're not putting that capital towards making sure that the products that we're bringing to market are products that are going to appeal to new consumers, then we're not doing our job in terms of growing the industry uh, in, in an appropriate way. But, but and maybe I'll just round it out by saying, and we've, we've talked about it already, just the, the opportunities that exist right now, like today in the next 12 to 18 months with respect to allocating that capital to infrastructure and just bringing more product to market because it is flying off the shelves, that's naturally going to cause people to, to make that short-term decision about where to put the capital. And it is going to produce good returns in the short term. But like I said, you just got to be thoughtful about how that's going to evolve over time. Uh, related to the beverage conversation, I think the lounges are going to make a big difference there. You think about the way people share products or try new drinks. You know, it's like with their friend, you know, try this, whatever. And today there's not really a good social setting for that, and I don't know that we're quite in the place where it's like, oh, we're having a party on Friday. Let me go to the dispensary and stock up on 30 cans or whatever. You know, we're not quite there yet. And so I think that those social settings, like I think particularly about New York, right? And all the brand and sort of coolness that comes out of there, I think that's how you start to build away from that 1%. I I absolutely agree with that. And I think it kind of ties into what we were talking about before with respect to retail, which is accessibility mm-hmm. and making making those, not just making the product accessible, making those social experiences accessible. I think that it's been great to see how certain innovations that came out of COVID have been more established in terms of their permanency long-term. An example of that is uh, uh, jurisdictions enabling curbside pickup and delivery to extend beyond what was originally intended to be a short-term solution uh, to address the COVID, you know, COVID situations, I think you're starting to see more momentum from a regulatory perspective on creating the opportunity for consumption lounges. And I think the same way that it's going to be easier to build a market if there are more points of retail distribution for people to go in, learn about products, etc. To your point, you know, people people like to learn about products from bud tenders. They also like to learn products about products from people that they trust, their friends. And so establishing those points of accessibility, I think is gonna be be helpful for growing the industry too. Um, 
How about in terms of stage, right? There's all kinds of different stages that you can invest in in cannabis today, right? Are you interested in taking positions in the big MSOs and stuff like that? Do you really want to be venture capital and, and sort of take the early risk? What's the thoughts? There? So, so, so the stage that we're at right now, we've shifted away from our historical venture capital uh, approach. And we are a public company and we are cognizant that in order to be appropriately evaluated as a public company, you need cash flow, you need profitability because that's what investors are, are looking for, right? rightly so. Uh, I think in our, the previous iteration of our, of our business model where we were focused on venture capital, those opportunities by their nature have a longer life cycle associated with achieving that profitability or realizing that. So we're certainly focused now on opportunities where we believe in the revenue generation profile, we believe in the cash flow profile, and the earnings generation profile. Um, not necessarily would we you know, take positions in you know, the large you know, publicly traded uh, MSOs. We're not you know, focused on public um, uh, company investing, but we are looking at companies that are sort of in that mid-stage where they might be a larger regional MSO or maybe a single state operator with a presence in multiple individual, uh, sorry, a single state operator in, 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 in a single jurisdiction and being able to patchwork them together with other single state operators in other jurisdictions. That I think is at a stage of the life cycle that's a little bit earlier than the large MSOs you referred, but beyond the venture capital stage as well. Got it. That makes sense. Um, how about in terms of technology? Some of these, the biggest winners so far, you, know, you look at Dutchie's recent valuation, it's unbelievable right. to me. Um, how do you think about that? Is there new exciting software to be invested in or other technologies that you're excited about? I, I, I think there is. I mean, we, we one of our earlier investments was in Headset, which I think they've been doing sure. an incredible job in terms of building out their market data and insights platform. And I think that you know this industry is just craving for more and better information, better access to data. People need to make critical decisions off of that information. That information is evolving so quickly because of how quick the market is growing and how new consumers are growing into the market. So you know, we, we love things like that. We, we, we're, we're very fortunate to have been invested in Headset um, when we established that position. I think there are other software and technologies that are coming out in the marketplace that are very exciting for the industry overall right now. And you know, at the end of the day, what that is fundamentally achieving is it's just making the incumbent operators' lives easier. How do they engage in production in, 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 in a more efficient way? How do they engage in retail in a more efficient way? These tools that you're referring to are really helping them achieve those, achieve those objectives. That's just great for the industry overall, and that's just going to help the industry grow. Yeah, um, a ton of competition right now. It's going to be really interesting to see how the Dutchy, iHeartJane, how all of it plays out. Yes. Or maybe there's another player yeah. that is going to... 350 million of capital does help. It does Absolutely. help. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that can hurt. Yeah. Uh, they have a huge thing installation here at MJ Biz. Yes. Although I'm sure they paid for that before <laughs> they, they got the new uh, recent influx. Um, how has the deal flow changed since the early days? I mean, you must get so much now. But you're actually looking for less in a way, that, right? That, I think that's a really good way to describe it. In 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 the previous iteration of the business model, you know, we we evaluated a ton of pitches on a regular basis, and and also too, you know, when you look at 2018, 2019, 2020, there were just a ton of companies coming to market focused on ancillary parts of the cannabis chain, which was very uh, appealing to us, and and you know, we ended up executing on a few of those opportunities, but. We've always been very fortunate in terms of the access to deal flow, the access to opportunities 
um, that that we've had, and I think I think the pipeline has has served us well. Exactly the way you described it. We're kind of we're looking at less right now, and it doesn't mean that there are less opportunities that are out there, but our focus is much more narrow. We knew we know where we want to deploy that capital and what opportunities uh, are, are looking like uh, in that space. But it's great to see that even though the capital markets have experienced you know a tricky period here recently, and that has contributed to the dearth of capital in the space, also attached to regulatory considerations and, and things like that. It's great to see that continued evolution of new businesses popping up, seeking capital, continuing to grow. I was speaking at the um, MJ Biz Finance Forum the other day, and afterwards had a great opportunity to talk to a bunch of different operators that are you know focused on bringing that venture capital investing into their company to, to enable them to grow. And it's just it's great to see that prol- proliferation of businesses in the industry. Yeah. This week just keeps getting longer. Soon, oh, yeah. soon it's going to be cannabis two weeks. Yeah, yeah. the whole month of October eventually. <laughs> um, given the, the more limited deals that you're looking at mm-hmm. and wanting to do, does that mean it's significantly bigger check size? Is that part of that yes. here? You want to deploy, I mean, you got a lot in the war chest. So. Absolutely, yeah. No, the, 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 you know, the opportunities that we looked at before, and it wasn't you know, con- con- completely consistent across the board, but we'd be looking at opportunities to write you know, five, $10 million checks. Now, with the capital that we have on the balance sheet today, um, with Scott's as a strategic uh, backer, and just looking at, and I bring it back to that revenue and cash flow generating profile of the companies we're talking to, that necessitates larger check sizes, and that's what we're focused on doing. Scale is going to be fundamentally critical to ensuring that the business is successful long term, and we're not going to get there with you know, 20, 30, $40 million deals. So the opportunities we're looking at now are much larger check sizes, and it does necessitate very thoughtful diligence and ensuring that we're doing everything that we can to make sure the opportunities that we do end up executing on are the right ones for the business. But it is very exciting to be participating in a space where we're talking about larger check sizes than we, what we might have talked about in the past. As a CFO, that must be really exciting. It, it's very exciting. It's, you know, I obviously have to be very critical about the assumptions that are going into where we're going to put that capital. Uh, and at the end of the day, you got to make sure that you're not running out of capital. But I think we're in a very fortunate position right now with the balance sheet that we have. Uh, and it's just critical for us to, to spend that cash and make sure that we're putting it to good work. Absolutely. Um, I want to switch gears, talk a little bit about you for sure. a second behind the business. What's your day to day like? I mean, CFO can encompass a lot of stuff, right? Yes. What, what are you working on? What do you do? I, I think that's one of the things that I love the most about this role in this company. We're, we're, we're a relatively small team. And I think that that necessitates us to you know wear certain hats, but wear multiple hats. And I've loved the opportunity to learn about different non-finance elements of the industry. And I think a lot of those lessons and a lot of those uh, aspects of, of, of commerce apply Broadly, beyond beyond just the the cannabis sector, so I you know it's it's a it's a difficult position in a lot of ways, just because of you know the nature of being a public company, what that uh, requires in terms of ongoing reporting, things of that nature, you know the the uh, amount of opportunities that we're looking at and the financial evaluation of those opportunities, and and just thinking about the market more more generally, and not just looking at multiples, and not just looking at what transactions are taking place at or what trading trends are, but just thinking broadly about what some of the key strategic initiatives are that are going on 
in the industry and at our company. Uh, so I, I love the fact that in my chair, I get exposed to, to all of that and I wouldn't want it any other way. No matter how much data and analysis goes into it, there's still a judgment call. Absolutely. That happens there. Absolutely. How does that work inside the organization? Is there like a committee that's doing this or how, you know, how do you make that final decision? Well, you know, at the end of the day, when it can, I'll get kind of technical here. At the end of the day, when it comes to large material investments or transactions, that is board approval that's required to be yeah. able to, to, to execute on that. Uh, it's up to us as the management team to be able to you know, paint the accurate picture of the opportunity for the board, uh, a sober picture of the opportunity for the board in the sense that we want to make sure that we're not being overly optimistic about what um, you know, can, can be achieved by the companies that we're looking at, but also thinking outside the box and really establishing what are the opportunities here? What can we actually make this do if we are uh, going to commit to writing this, this large check? So there's a lot of work that we do internally to make sure that we're very thoughtful about the approach we're taking and the analysis that, that we're doing. We have a great uh, level of dialogue with, with our board of directors in conjunction with uh, the recent investment by uh, the Hawthorne Collective, which is the Scott subsidiary that invested in us. We got to add three new board members, Chris Hagedorn, uh, who leads the Hawthorne Gardening Initiative at, uh, at Scott's, uh, Mark Sims, and Gary Vaynerchuk. And I think having that additional expertise on the board has been fantastic. Uh, and you know, I, I feel very fortunate to work with the people that I get to work with and see how they think about the industry. And we're all continuing to learn from each other, not just within the company, but in the dialogue we have with other companies as well. And look, you mentioned it's, it's, there's a lot of competition. A lot of people wanna fight for the same pie. But I think in, in weeks like this, I think really help build the case of there is still a lot of cooperation in the industry. People still are focused on this idea of we're building this market together and sure, we're all gonna be going after our slice of it, but how can we do it in a way that is constructive to building the industry overall. And, and you love to see how it plays out, especially in, in weeks like this. Are we gonna see you on Gary V's uh, Instagram soon? Is that... <laughs> uh, I'm trying, I'm trying, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. I've spent a little bit of time around him. He is yeah. a character. He is energetic and and uh, it's it's contagious, his, it is. his energy. Yeah. And uh, it's contagious how how he thinks about things and, and it's it's just great to see that that passion and that thoughtfulness come to life in our board meetings and, and how he interacts with the company. So it's fantastic. And he's really involved. He really pays attention and- Yeah, I mean, we like, so we just came off announcing this transaction two months ago. So we had our first board meeting uh, a, a few weeks back. We've got another one coming up and there's just such a great level of, of engagement across the board. Cool. And, you know, we, we benefit tremendously from that, from that expertise and, and what that means for, to help us in our collective decision. Mm -hmm. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Oh, wow. I know you it's, have a big finance background, but would you be doing that? You know, it's, it's funny. This is going to be a bit of a weird answer, but I think um, as a finance person, you have a sort of a natural association with somebody that might not be as creative. I'd love to write a book. I'd yeah. love to write a book. I'd love to write a story. That's what I was hoping you were going and, to say. And, yeah. I just, and, I, and I think that, and I kind of tie it back to you know, the question you asked before, just in terms of my role and the benefit of being able to get involved in different parts of the organization. I, I love that aspect of it because I think it really challenges your creativity. And I think that it could be uh, easy or natural to just fall into a pattern of looking at things through a narrow tunnel and, and not thinking more broadly or outside the box. But I'd love to be doing something that really gets to demonstrate my creative passions. And I think that I've really enjoyed being able to do that in this role in this industry. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Not surprising. Yeah. People often like, 
basketball players want to be rappers, you know. Yeah. Rappers want to be basketball <laughs> yeah, yeah, players. Enough. I don't think it's uh, changes. You ever have the itch to be an operator? Is that ever something that goes through your head? I, I think what, what's what's great about the stage that we're at right now is that we're very cognizant of what we know and what we do. We're very cognizant of what Scott's knows and what Scott's does well, and we're very cognizant of what the counterparties that we're talking to as we're evaluating various transaction and investment and acquisition opportunities are good at. And you know, for us, as we go through this process, we're gaining operational knowledge. That's not what Canopy Rivers 1.0 um, was about so it is an evolution that's happening uh, over time. But I, I, I think it's just it's so awesome to speak to entrepreneurs. It's so awesome to speak to the founders. A because they're just they're so passionate about their business. And I think that's one of the things that really drew me to this industry was talking to people that were in the industry currently and hearing about how just passionate and excited they were about what they do on a day to day basis. But I've also been so thoroughly impressed by how you know, detailed their understanding of their operations are. And I think that, you know, you love to hear the stories about the CEOs or others in the C-suite that are actually on the ground doing the work, because I think that that is you know, critical to understanding how the business operates and helps you take those steps towards uh, uh, eventually connecting with the consumer. Um, so, so, I, so I love learning more about that. I love seeing it in action. And I think that that could be a, a really exciting path forward. Perfect example of getting in the weeds. Last night, I'm walking up to the trees party, and John, the CEO, is the one checking people in. It's great. And, you know, <laughs> and he's awesome. in a t-shirt, everybody's like suited up, you yes. know, trying to be cool, and I'm like, that's the guy you should put totally. money in, you know? Totally. And, and, and like, that's, that's something as we've built He's up also a big team. fan of the show, so I think <laughs> I get the show. Well show. That's perfect. <laughs> um, no, but that, I, think, I think that's fantastic, I think that's awesome. I think that's something that we've tried to, to establish within, within our company, is just that idea of, you know, everybody has a particular hat, but roll up your sleeves, pitch in across the yeah. board, and get to know the business. And, 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 you know, people talk about it all the time, how one of the things that attracts them to this industry is that it is so new in so many ways, and it is such a blank slate in so many ways, so it really gives you the chance to kind of create that dent. And I think if you're, if you're in this industry and you're not taking advantage of it, you're, you're, you're missing a great opportunity. How's your personal relationship with cannabis evolved? I think I, you know, being in the industry, I've definitely wanted to understand it um, better. And I think, you know, obviously, there's situations where you'll talk to people that work in the industry, and I think they still, unfortunately, get a little bit uncomfortable about, you know, talking about their their consumption of it. Which is fascinating to me. It's 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 fascinating. Obviously, you know, everybody has their own, you know, personal opinions and and, and views and beliefs. But I but I do think that as we, you know, said today, and as many people have said before, this is going to be an industry that's about connecting with the consumer understanding what the consumer wants uh, and, and being able to put products that they're actually going to enjoy, whether it's you know therapeutic, whether it's recreational, whatever the case may be. And I think that, again, my personal view is that to be able to do that effectively, you have to have a good understanding of the product. Uh, and you know, to your point before about innovation and how you know, bringing new products to, to, to market is gonna be critical for, for, for growing the industry, I was so excited when beverages first came out in Canada and we had this sort of leg when in October 2018, when it uh, federally legalized, there was an entire, what I think ended up being about 14 months before derivative products were more broadly uh, available. So seeing the edibles and beverages landscape evolve uh, off of that has been, uh, has, been, has been great. And I think there's a lot of great products that, that we're able to consume that really you know, achieve what, what people want out of it. For me, it's a relaxation thing. I think it's a great, way to relax. I think it's a great um, opportunity to relax at, at, at the end of the night. Uh, and that's, that's how I feel about it. 
flowers, vapes, edibles? My, gravitate my, anywhere? My, migrate towards uh, edibles and beverages. I think, you know, it's, it's you know, especially seeing the, the um, product offering at, at, at Planet 13. It's great to see all the different crazy. Uh, form factors that, that are out there for sure. My, my migration is towards uh, edibles and, and, uh, and, and beverages, but there's you know, some great vape and flower products as, as, as well. Got the Paxera and the various pods up, up in Canada that, uh, that, that, that are good to consume. So yeah, it's been, it's been great to, to try things across the board. And again, I think it's just more and more about getting to know the consumer, what the consumer wants. Uh, and I think the consumer is becoming a lot smarter as well about the product, which is, which is great. I really like the breath strips. I think they're underrated. I've never, I've never had. I've I think never they're had. underrated. They, yeah. They're really fast acting because they okay. go right yeah. into your bloodstream. And I don't know, it's just really simple. I mean, it's sort of in line with the mints, but I just think it's clever. It's, yes. it's novel that most people haven't tried it yet. A anything that helps with that bioavailability, anything that helps with that more reliable onset time and you know, sublingual is, is certainly a, a great avenue to, to achieving that. But again, innovation, right? Yeah. What, what new products are coming that are gonna help establish those, those standards for consumers. That's, that's the exciting part. One of the biggest innovations I see is actually the offset time. Yes. Because that's one thing with alcohol too, right? You can have a beer and you know how long it's gonna to take to hit you, and then you know how long you're not gonna be in, uh, affected anymore, right? That's very hard to do still uh, in cannabis. I, I think, and I hadn't really thought about that before this moment, but I do think that offset is more important to consumer than onset because you know it's gonna come or you have, a, you know, uh, a belief that it's going to come, but I think people might be in situations where they are, you know, consuming cannabis at a particular point, and they want to make sure that the effects of that last within a particular window. And not having a defendable, uh, sorry, uh, dependable offset time, it just throws that out the window. So that's certainly something that you know I hope companies are spending more and more time focusing on proving. If we want those other consumers, we have to give them something that they can then go back to their kids. Yes. You know, they, they can feel good in the morning. Absolutely. It's, it's crucial, yes. it's crucial, right? Um, you've been in the industry a while, right? How do you feel about where we are just as a whole? Obviously different than what you predicted, different than what everybody predicted. But. Nobody got it right. Nobody got it right, and that's totally fine. That's totally fine. That's that investing got it in right. general. That, right? is, that is investing in general. Um, I think you know we we knew that again something that was so regulated would evolve in ways that was going to be unanticipated or or not easy to predict. I feel really good. I feel really good about where it is. I feel really good about where it's it's going. And I think the simplest way to really characterize that is just the conversations you have with people that you might not have anticipated would acknowledge use and enjoyment of the product. And I see that just more and more in everyday interactions, either in, in my friends group or, or broader than that, people are just becoming more and more comfortable with the product. I think that education just goes a long way to helping make that happen. Um, so I, I, I feel very good about it. I think, and you know, again, kind of stating the obvious here, it's been tough for people that have been looking at it from a capital markets perspective. It hasn't been a smooth capital markets story. And I think in a lot of ways, the industry has uh, been disadvantaged from the fact that in many pockets, it was a capital market story before it was a business story or a social story. Yep. Um, so I do think that there is an easier, or we are having an easier time right now, focusing on business, focusing on how it's really impacting people and improving uh, people's lives versus some of the capital markets um, elements that I think maybe got people a little bit distracted early on. And I think the capital markets catch up with it. I think whether it's through regulation and what needs to get passed in order to improve 
access to, to capital or just how valuations of public companies will hopefully normalize uh, over time. I know, you know investors broadly have, have seen a challenging environment play out this calendar year, but we do have a high degree of confidence that it is going in the right direction. There is an element of patience, I think, that's attached to that. But as long as we're confident in terms of the direction that we're going, um, nobody knows how quickly we're going to get there. Nobody knows. We just got to make sure that we're agile along the way. I think that's very well said. Uh, I think that's a good place to start to wrap up here. How can our audience help you? Are you looking to hire something? Is there a partner you're looking for? I, you know what? I, I honestly think one of the most important things to do is just we're focused on growing the industry. We want to make this industry as, as big and successful as it could, could possibly be. So I think you know, you're, this is such an educational platform for your audience. Your audience are very intelligent people when it comes to cannabis. And I think just spreading that knowledge, spreading that education, helping people that don't understand the product understand it a little bit better that's one of the best things that that folks can do. And and I think the other thing I'd say to add on to that is just be optimistic. It's a it's a choppy ride along the way. It's not an easy industry to 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 operate in or or see how it evolves over time, but just have optimism. You feel good about where it's going and 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 spread that optimism. I think would be would be great. Hey man, for your first podcast, I think you did a pretty good job. Appreciate that. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> this was a great conversation. Thanks so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brandon. Appreciate it.